right. Welcome back to another magical episode of Sparking School Magic. This is Lori Storch, elementary school principal, and I'm joined by Dan Cockrell, former VP of the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom and a fellow leader of over 12,000 employees and one excellent author and podcaster. We're joined today with a very talented, passionate, world-class author and keynote speaker, blogger, George Kuros, the author of Innovator's Mindset and Innovate Inside the Box. How are you both today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me today. You know, I'm really excited to talk to you both about your work that's centered around creating a culture of innovation, generating and applying all of these out-of-the-box ideas that are so frequently shared, whether you live in a classroom or, uh, you know, run a business like Disney, you both make it look so very easy. And I'm hoping that our conversation today will help inspire some fellow educators. You know, George, you, you wrote Innovator's Mindset and Innovate Inside the Box, and your book was reviewed by one of my favorite people, Daniel Pink, for your creativity, your intriguing ideas. And I think what I liked most about your book, Innovate Inside the Box, you gave some real actionable items to apply. Love the title. Tell me why you called your book Innovate Inside the Box, rather outside the box. Well, I think the the one thing that's true, not only in education, but you know, all facets of life, we, we continuously ask people to think outside the box. But the reality of it is that we, especially in education, always work within constraints. Like if you've been teaching 30 plus years, not one person listening to this could name the year we had a ton of money, right? It's never happens, right? And so it's the idea of there are always going to be constraints in education. There's always going to be, no matter, you know, we get way more money. Uh, we're always going to have a similar, you know, uh, time frame of the day. Maybe the schedule will change, which is part of the idea of innovates at the box. But the time frame of the day will kind of be eight to three, whatever, around that time. And so how do we work with inside the constraints that often happen in education to create really meaningful learning opportunities for our students and for ourselves? And I know that in a lot of places in education, there's a lot of issues, you know, schools not being properly funded. And those are things that we continuously need to push back against and change. But my co-author on the book, Katie Novak, she really said it in a really powerful way is that the students in grade three this year, this is their one shot at grade three. So how do we ensure that they have the best experience possible for that year? And that is kind of the whole mentality of, yeah, we'll always have constraints. There's always be issues in everything that we do in our life. How do we make these really meaningful opportunities happen still acknowledging those constraints exist? Yeah, you know, I think what you're, what you're talking about, it's just, it's a different way of thinking, whether it's, you know, within constraints or not. And I think if there's any company that does it well, it's the Walt Disney World Company of working in the field of innovation, bringing guests into a theme park, entertainment experiences, always ultimately changing. That, I guess, is the question. How do you make that happen? How do you do that so consistently? Dan, maybe you can comment on that because that to me is Disney's specialty of how to capture the magic and keep people coming. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. the same thing. It's really interesting. George is describing this as staying inside the box. And I have, I mean, I have a million stories that would relate to this, but I think it goes back to this idea that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I, I found myself in a lot of projects at, at Disney where, you know, I'm on the operations side and we're talking with the Imagineers. And uh, a lot of times we would say, hey, we need a new attraction in Tomorrowland. 
can you tell us what you come up with? And we, at the time, weren't disciplined or insightful enough to maybe give them any guidelines out of how much money we wanted to spend or how, what the capacity had to be for the attraction or who we were targeting. And they would go off for six months and come back with a fantastic project. It was like five times more expensive than we can afford. And so what we started to learn is whether it came to creating a new parade or a new fireworks show or a new attraction or a new restaurant, they always said, look, let's not go down that path again. Before we get started, tell us how big the box is. Give us all the requirements that you need to meet operationally to make this work. And at Disney, that includes not only does it have to be the right IP, right? It has to be the right theme. It has to be the right characters, the right story. It has to be the right ride system. It has to have when you're getting tens of thousands of people visiting the parks, it has to deliver an experience to tens of thousands of people. We've come up with some great concepts, but it only delivers you know, 200 guests an hour. And that's not going to help. You're going to create a bigger issue than you had before. So I think a lot of times by creating constraints on projects, you actually get much more creative, innovative thinking because people have to get much more creative to work around them. It's almost hard, harder to get great creative work done when you don't have any constraints and the money's no object. And that's typically not the case. But uh, it's, uh, it's very helpful when you can give people some, here's some lines you can't cross. And then they end up getting much more creative to work through those. Yeah, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, schools, we rely on change and innovation. I think your point, George, you're right. We only get it right one time. A third grader will only be a third grader one time. And as kids exit education and move on into the real world, they have to have these skills to be able to create change and apply their learning. You know, your, your book really was broken into three main areas, focus on the core. And I, I think what you talked about there is that the notion that small investments pay large dividends. You cited some great examples where you know, the importance of valuing questioning and being vulnerable as a school leader, focusing on the, on the things that matter, your people. One of the charts you had there, I just absolutely loved because schools, I think this is, this is what we do best. We take learning from other schools or other businesses and other people's success is learned from something that we modify and apply in our own context to create our own success. And, you know, great ideas are born at school, but really smart leaders take the success of schools and make it even bigger and better for their own institution. Disney does that with Pixar, you know. We look at companies and like Amazon, different products that are rolled out through Apple. The first go-round may not be the perfect, the perfect product, but over time, change and innovation makes it better. So, you know, maybe respond to that, focusing on the core, George, and, and you know, please share anything that I missed there. Yeah, so the, the first part of the book, we do talk, and as, you, as you mentioned, the, the idea of how important the small investments are. And so one of the things I talk about, and this is, again, true, not only in education, but outside, is that the center of all the work that we do is how we build relationships with the people that we serve. Like, how do we actually know who they are, what makes them tick, and one of the analogies that I talk about often is that we always talk about relationships in education that our teachers should really know our students, but do our students know our teachers? Do they actually see them, you know, as human beings, not just people that happen to teach? And do they see that they have connections, they have a lot of things in common? And so one of the ideas when we talk about this core is, you know, how do we know the passions of our students? How do we know what they're curious about? What do we know what their strengths are? 
And I think that especially in education, one of the things that we are notoriously bad at is focusing on what our people cannot do. And this is not just our students, but our teachers too. Like you'll see a whole, you know, division or district goals will be about, you know, math scores because our math scores are bad, but we won't focus on how great our reading and writing scores are, you know? So we constantly talk about the areas that we could do better as opposed to, hey, we're really good at this. This is something that we're really powerful at. How do we tap into this? And the idea of building upon, you know, knowing the people in front of you and knowing what their strengths are is not ignoring and pretending they don't have weaknesses. It's that when we start at that place of strength and people feel valued, they tend to go further and will do incredible things. And like we we talk about the idea of innovation, but I'm not really going to be innovative in something I don't care about or I'm not good at. But if you could tap into what I know and what I build at, then I'll go the extra mile, do incredible things. And then probably my weaknesses will be developed through that process because I know I value and I'm more willing to put more effort into the work that I do, whether it's as an educator, a staff member, or a student. So I think that's what we really talk about you know, when we talk about the core is really knowing the people you serve, knowing who they are, what drives them, what they're passionate about, and how do we utilize those things still working within the constraints of what we have to do, but really starting at that at that person first mentality. Yeah, Dan, do you want to comment on what that looks like at Disney? Because I, I think you can share some insight there. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm a, you know, we talked about this before, I'm a big fan of uh, the Gallup organization and the work they do around looking at people's strengths and, and matching those. And I've had that question before after I've given speeches. People say, well, how do, you, how do you find so many people who are so friendly and nice to work at Disney? And as I tell them, I say, well, we sort of stack the deck. When we hire people, we find people who are, are naturally going to be successful in that kind of environment. We look for people who enjoy working with the public. We look for people who enjoy service. We look for people who have high stamina and high energy levels and have a great attitude. And so when you can do that, training is just sort of, it's, a, it's an extra thing to do for them, but they're going to be successful no matter what you do, because you're putting them in an environment that they're going to be, it's going to be a natural fit for them. And as I tell people, you know, every job, every company is not for everybody. And Disney's not for everybody. If you're an introvert at Disney, it's a hard job to, to keep that energy level up because everyone there is, you know, a lot of Kool-Aid is drunk because people believe in what they're doing. And so I think that to George's point is when you get to know people on a personal level, you can start to give them things that they're naturally wired to do. And, and when that happens, they'll be more likely to thrive in that structure, to do better in that structure. You know, I was in, on teams previously before I sort of really thought about this. And, you know, we would take the most disorganized manager and say, hey, you're going to do schedules for a year so you can learn how to do that. I mean, that wasn't a very good idea. They didn't like <laughs> yeah. schedules. They weren't organized. So they made my job miserable. All the cast members' jobs miserable. They were miserable. So this idea, I think, of let's, let's all try to be good at everything, I don't think that's a good approach. And in school, I think sometimes we have this well we, we want a well-rounded person. And I think we push that to the maximum. I want you to be great at math and reading and social skills and individual sports and team sports. And, you know, you want people to be great at everything. People can be very good at a lot of things, but they can only be great at a couple things. And I think that's true. I've seen that in the, in the real world. You know, I can give speeches on leadership, but if I try to tackle another topic, it's a disaster because I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in everything. So I think you have to know what, your, what your, your strengths are. And if you can put yourself in those environments, it's more fun for you. You get better results and everyone around you kind of thrives with that. 
And if I could actually just, if I could build on Dan's point, one of the constraints that we actually as education systems often create is we'll have a, a grade two teacher leave and then we, we put a position for a grade two teacher. And what happens is that we actually eliminate really good people from getting that job because they don't have experience teaching second grade. And so one of the things that we really focus on in our organization, something that I focus on, was we would just say elementary teacher. And we would look for the best people and then we would organize the jobs around their gifts and talents. And we would look at, for example, Dan has certain strengths, I have certain strengths. And so the organization might need those strengths, but does Dan provide A and do I provide B? And so we would look for, you know, going beyond, can this person teach this grade specifically? Or do we actually have someone in this organization that would love to teach that grade? And we have this awesome person that we can move and shift here. And so sometimes like when we talk about the constraints in education, they're not necessarily from outside forces. They're actually ones we've created ourselves. Yeah. And so really, if you look at some, we could change some of the box in ourselves and just building on what Dan said, what he's talking about is we are looking for the best people and we will fit stuff to them as opposed to, no, you don't, you don't do A, B, and C. You're incredible and we'd love to have you, but you don't fit this job description exactly. And then you lose out on some really amazing people within your organization. That's a great point. You know, in, in your section, Focus on the Core, you wrote, stop asking this question. We are developing leaders of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Tell me why. Well, the idea is that when we say the idea to our students that like when we say this over and over again, we're developing our leaders of tomorrow, the subtle insinuation we make to our students is they can actually have an impact on our world right now. And throughout the book, one of the things I do is highlight a lot of students around the world actually active in school currently who are doing things that are changing lives around the world. And so the best way to ensure our students will be leading tomorrow is to put them in the position to lead right now, because then they have a proven track record of doing this over and over again. And so when we talk about certain things like how do we develop our students, not only problem solvers, but problem finders, that they are looking for things that they can you know, create new and better opportunities for, we actually put those kids in leadership opportunities right now. And I think that's something that is something I'm really passionate about that our students, and, and we're talking about like real leadership opportunities. We're not talking about we put students in different roles and just call them leading. We're talking about students actually having something they're passionate about and actually having the ability to move other people forward in a positive manner in meaningful ways within our schools. And I think that's something, if you do it, like I said, if you do it today, it's definitely going to happen tomorrow as opposed to hoping it does. Because a lot of students, we say that, but then a lot of students go out in the world and they just learn how to be compliant in an organization, but they're not really looking for opportunities to better the people they work with or actually creating opportunities for others as well. Yeah, you know, that is a nice segue right into the next section, really on the characteristics of an innovator. And you talk about, you know, eight things, empathy, being reflective, love finders and solvers. I'm going to come back to that. Risk takers, the opportunity to network how students and educators can network because this is both really for students and and educators. Being observant, being a creator and being resilient. Talk a little bit about, you know, problem solving, finders and solvers, because I I, I just, I love that term. Yeah. The thinkers and the doers. Yeah, you and Macintosh, he got me onto this idea, and I think that he was led to it by someone else. The idea of problem finders. So when we talk about 
students having the ability to solve problems, which is a, a totally meaningful activity and exercise. We are often asking students to solve problems they don't even care about. And so what we're trying to develop in our students is how do we actually get them to find problems that matter to them and then pose the solutions. And I think one of the misconceptions about that idea is that we're developing either problem finders or problem solvers. And I, I can tell you, I know a lot of people that are amazing problem finders, but ha- don't necessarily you know, <laughs> give you solutions, right? They'll just tell you everything that's wrong, but don't provide solutions. So it's actually talking about developing both aspects in the students we work with. Uh, one of the things that we talk about is asking students, like, what's something that you're really passionate about? What's something that you think could make your community better? What do you, what's something that you can make not just, you know, within our school, but local community, even global community? And actually tapping into those things that they're passionate about and getting them to ask questions and then pose solutions. And one of the, one of the things I actually highlighted in my first book, The Innovator's Mindset, I remember this one student was talking about how you know, they were actually losing like their own jackets. They were in a school and they were in uniforms and they actually put QR codes and he got the idea. So this is an issue that they were dealing with as kids and it's not the end of the world, but it's something that was important to them. But the way they actually went about to find a solution, they actually went to like FedEx and talked about like, how do you find lost packages? How do you do these things? And so they actually connected with all these groups and then they created a solution that started leading to them creating other ideas. So something that was meaningful to the kid that's in grade five or six at the time, it, now they're creating a solution for it. So they each had to do like um, a TED talk based on something that they were passionate about, a problem they saw in the community that they actually want to solve. It was just fascinating to listen to kids because like I said, we ask kids to solve problems a lot of times that they don't care and will never actually be a, like a matter in their life. And I think we are asking kids to look for those ideas right now. I really, I think that's great because, you know, you talk about right here, right now, kids taking that leadership role. It's so, so important. You know, Disney too, I think, Dan, you mentioned the Gallup poll and getting employees and cast members in the right role within Disney, but maybe talk a little bit about the innovation branch of Disney and, you know, the kind of cast member that is attracted to that section of the company. What are their characteristics? Yeah. I would you know, we have a, the part of the, I call it the quote unquote creative part of our, the Disney company, the Imagineers, right? They're the ones that are coming up with all the new concepts and, and new things that are going to build for our guests. But I think something that I, as, as I worked at Disney over the years, I, I concluded was uh, creativity and innovation. Everyone can do that. It can't sign it off to a department. And if you do, you're going to miss out on a lot of great opportunities. And I was in that boat, you know, and we always were very careful at Disney. You know, I'd, I'd say, Hey, I'm the operator here, but I want to pull my creative card out and give a, a suggestion. And you always had to walk lightly because you're not an Imagineer. But I think it's um, as long as you understand how the process works, respect the process, I think anyone can step in and give suggestions and be able to add. I think the big thing I've learned as I've studied this more and read some books over the past couple of years is you know, creativity is getting an idea and innovation is implementing it, but both have to create value. And I think sometimes people forget about that. They say, we're going to be real creative and innovative. You say, but always remember, you're trying to solve a problem. And the problem, I think to George's point, has to be relevant and we have to care about it. Our guests have to care about it or our employees have to care about it. Because some ideas are out there. They're interesting ideas, but they're not solving a problem. They're not solving a business issue. They're not solving anything. 
but it can come from everyone. And I think one of the things you have to be careful is we do get in a mindset where we stop asking questions sometimes. And I'll, I'll give a quick example. My, um, our youngest son, Tristan, is uh, at the University of Denver and they're on trimester. So he's home for a month after Thanksgiving when he came home. He's not going back out there till January. So he went and got a job working at the Magic Kingdom over Christmas at Cosmic Rays, the giant, gigantic $22 million <laughs> burger place. I think you all know it. Yeah. And he came home and uh, we were, my, my wife and I were peppering him with questions because he's only been there for two days. We said, okay, if a guest comes up to you and asks a question, how do you, what do you, and you don't know the answer, what do you do? He said, well, what's the question? We said, doesn't matter. You don't know the answer. And then finally, so I, I go ask somebody. We said, yes, you tell people, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to find out. And I said, well, you, you know about the telecast, right? And he said, what the telecast? I said, yeah, it's that little booklet you have in your pocket and it folds like eight times. And it's got like 95% of any question a guest is going to ask you about Walt Disney World's on that telecast. All the park hours for all the parks, fireworks times, parade times, phone numbers. I mean, it's an incredible document, low tech. It comes out every week. And he said, if it's got so much information on it, why don't we just give the telecast directly to the guests? <laughs> I stood there for a minute and I said, you know, I, I worked at Disney 26 years and I never thought about that. Maybe that's a good idea. And so maybe I'll write a letter and go, hey, why don't you just give that to our guests? It's not that we don't want cast members to ask questions, but if it's such a great tool, why not give it to people who are going to use it mm -hmm. the most? So it can come from anywhere. I love it. You know, you are the change you seek. And George, your quote, if you look for problems, you'll find problems. If you look mm -hmm. for solutions, you'll find solutions. And I the last couple of chapters of, of the book, you talk about, you know, when you have a compelling reason, you can really learn anything. And that mm -hmm. is so suited to students and educators because change is ultimately going to happen. And it's up to us to kind of move with the change. That's really where the innovation and creativity come from. If you were to give, you know, your blog is Principle of Change. If you were to give some advice to teachers and educational leaders, what are some things that you could remind us of to be more open to change and more embracing of that? What would you say? Well, I think it's a really important question. And I think it ties into, you know, what Dan was just saying about seeing solutions that, you know, were obvious to us that could be presented from someone else. And I think part of what happens in education and organizations is that we become accustomed to this is the way we do things, right? And we don't even notice certain things. We don't pick things up. And I thought Dan's story about the telecast is really powerful. And one of the things I really encourage educators is that if you act like you're new every single day, you will actually never become irrelevant. That if you're looking at, you know, you're noticing things on the walls. Like, what does the wall say to our kids? Is this a practice that, you know, we still do? And I think it's even questioning some traditional things that we do in education that we just do because we've always done them, right? And this is not my quote, but I think it's hilarious. One of the one of my funniest quotes is tradition is peer pressure from dead people. And I thought it was just fascinating <laughs> that someone actually said that, right? And you know, like obviously some traditions are great, but like when I was a principal, one of the things we actually got rid of in our schools was awards. And that actually was something that was a little shocking to the schools I worked at, you know, schools around the world and what we did. And the reason we did awards is because we always did awards. And that was it. We just assumed it was a good practice. But we were talking about the importance of collaboration. We were talking about getting kids to become creative and innovative thinkers. But what we were rewarding 
and what we were tailoring kids to was individual success on totally can you fill in the bubble sheets? Can you actually get the best score on this test? And so what we were saying was important was actually not tied to what we were doing. And so we actually started talking about, hey, like, are we, why are we still doing this? Like, is this actually in line with the things that we want to do, you know, in our organization? And we just came to the question over and over again, or to the answer that, no, it's not. It's actually not getting to the, what we actually need from our students. And like a lot of people listening, even though I just gave really good examples on why we got rid of them, they still get stuck on the idea, well, no, but how can you get rid of awards? Like that's really a tough thing to do, even though I just gave examples and we get stuck into this because we've always done it that way. And I think that when you walk into an organization and you, you always see yourself as a learner, that you're always willing to learn. And I'm a big advocate. Like I've been in education 20 plus years. I'm telling you, there's people that are in education for one day and they could teach me stuff. And there's people with 35 years experience that could teach me stuff. And I'm willing to learn from any place like that I go. And I think as long as we carry that mentality in education and we model that for our kids and you have kids who model that mentality when they go into whatever field they go into, because one of the things I say is that like you can fight change, you can create change, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's coming. So I would prefer that I create the change in my organization than it happens to me. And so I think that's what we've really kind of focused when we talk about that, that notion of being the change you see. Always act new. I think that's really important to the work that we do. I think it's great advice. Uh, you know, there's one part too. You say that you shared a new day is an opportunity really for a new challenge and to help inspire and better and um, make improvements to our experience for kids. You know, I would say to, to never give up and that the sun will always come up because, mm -hmm. it, you know, as you're creating change, it sometimes creates not harmony right? The opposite of harmony and it becomes uncomfortable. But to Dan's point, if it's a relevant problem and people care about it and there's value there, then the change is successful. You know, that's a wrap. The answer to creating innovative and teaching learning experiences really, according to George Kuros, is it relies in you. And Dan Cockrell, George, thank you so much for sharing your experience on another episode of Sparking School Magic. As you both are helping many educators in our field and school leaders to think differently about school innovation and our culture. You can follow our podcast on several platforms, including Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Thank you.